One thing about true crime is you can't make this stuff up. And a good true crime author backs up the story they write with research and facts. My guest today inherited a box full of facts that formed the basis of his book, Till Death Do Us. Thanks for joining Imagine Publicity on Air, which is partner-sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity. The podcast covers a really a wild, wide variety of topics for anyone out there that may be interested in current events, issues of importance, true crime, business, history, and of course, books and authors. I am your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. I'm, it's a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. Not only do I offer full services, but also training for those who prefer to personally handle their own accounts. I am really, really excited to bring on uh, my guest today, Patrick Gallagher, the author of Till Death Do Us. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Good morning, Delilah. I'm honored to be with you today. Great. You know, I usually start our conversations off because I want listeners and, you know, your potential readers to know a little bit about you, the author, the author who who writes these stories. So would you mind going over just a, you know, briefly your background? Where did you come from? What did you do besides write books? Well, uh, I was born and raised in eastern Oregon, right close to the Idaho border, out in sagebrush country, but it's also a very fertile country where a lot of potatoes and corn and rice and other vegetables like that are grown. And uh, But I currently live in Denver, Colorado, and I uh, spent my career, uh, did a number of different jobs, had a number of different attempts at careers, but ultimately... Uh, my career was as a customs broker, which is uh, a middleman that helps importers and exporters with their logistics and uh, dealing with U.S. customs. And uh, that was my career, but I retired from that 2016. So, you know, as I was reading the book and doing my own research on things about you, uh, I, I came across the whole backstory of how this book came about. And to me, it was almost just as interesting as the story that you told. Can you go into, you know, how, how you came to get this information and what you did with it? Well, uh, Delilah, it was never my goal in life to be a writer. Uh, I never intended to write a book, never thought that I could write a book, but I had this story that I inherited. My grandfather and my father both were attorneys, and they practiced in this town in eastern Oregon. Ontario was the name. And uh, uh, my grandfather was the attorney for a woman, and he represented her, defending her, as she was accused of first-degree murder. And um, as a result of that, he obtained uh, these documents that he uh, kept out of sight, basically, and they've been buried in an old family trunk for 73 years. And uh, I, I inherited that trunk 40 years ago when my dad died, and I saw those letters, 
And I always thought that someone should make a book out of that, but uh, because I was busy with my career, I didn't ever pursue it. Once I retired, I decided that this story needed to be told. It's just too interesting of a story, and it should be told. And and uh, so I had to make the decision whether to try and write a book myself or maybe give these letters to somebody else to write a book. And I, I chose to try and do it myself. Well, and as I understand it, that the box of letters was actually could have been used as evidence in that trial, right? Well, it probably, in, in today's world, where discovery is required by attorneys from each side, uh, they would have been available. But back in 1946, when the, 1947, when the trial occurred, uh, apparently those rules didn't apply. And so uh, my grandfather kept those letters out of the public eye and nobody knew of their existence. And so uh, I've included those letters in my book, and nobody's read them for 73 years. And they are very, they're very telling and very interesting. Well, let's talk about, um, let's talk about Gladys, who is uh, basically who the story wraps around in Till Death Do Us. Gladys was quite the interesting character, and did you, I'm sure, in, in putting all of this information together with the letters that you had, you still had to do a lot of background research, right? I did. You know, the story of Gladys was part of our family history and since, since I was born, uh, because the trial actually occurred the year I was born, but all my life. Uh, our families had this story that Granddad represented this woman that was you know, considered to be such such an evil woman by the community, and and uh, and we kind of knew the outcome of the case, but we knew no details other than that Granddad represented her. And so uh, when I I had the letters, but then I had to uh, learn all about the case, and that proved to be quite a challenge. But I really enjoyed doing the research on that. The first thing I wanted to do is find the trial transcript. It proved to be quite difficult. And I worked quite a bit and went to a number of uh, government agencies before I finally learned where the trial transcript could be obtained. I bet that was interesting to read. I, I mean, we think of a Perry Mason-type courtroom taking place back in that era, and I mean, when you read the transcripts, did you kind of have a picture in your mind of what it looked like and sounded like? You know, I did, you know, and uh, and I have a photo of all the attorneys, my granddad, and there were actually four attorneys for the defense, my grandfather being the lead attorney, and I've got a photo of those guys and, and a photo of uh, the victim, a photo of the uh, the defendant, my my grandfather's client, and uh, and several of the other key characters in there. So you know, I got a feeling for who they were, what they looked like, but the letters and the trial transcript were a huge window into looking at them and trying to understand their motivations. And Delilah, the book really is less about 
the trial and less about the murder than it is about Gladys and what kind of person she was and what motivated her to act the way she did, and also the victim, who was her husband. And uh, these letters give a, a, a huge window into his thinking and his soul, and I think that the big question that I have as I see this story and as I what I tried to portray in the book is, who who acts like this? You know, who acts like Gladys did? What kind of woman could do that? And who acts like the doctor, her husband? Who? Why would he act like that? Why would he respond to her the way he did based on how she treated him? I think it's fascinating to try and understand their psyches. Well, yeah, and I was I was going to ask, did in putting all of this together, did you have maybe a psychological profile done of her by any experts? Well, that would be interesting. I didn't, but I did have a friend who mentioned uh, a, a term in psychology called borderline personality disorder. I've heard that term for years, but to me the word borderline means it's just a little bit, you know, it's it's nothing big. But after my friend mentioned that, I did a little study on that. Whoa, that is a very serious mental illness, and it causes huge uh, problems in people's lives. So I've decided that's what she had, but that's just my judgment. Yeah, it's fun to be armchair psychologist, and especially especially with someone like like Gladys that, you know, I don't want to give away the story totally, but there were so many crazy things that she did, and she was always one scheme ahead of the other. And I might say she was married eight times. I mean, again, who does that very often? And and the thing of it was that I got out of it was she always she always had the next marriage in her back pocket or she was always working on the next marriage before the first one ended. And I don't know how she wove that web and kept things straight for as long as she did. Well, it is fascinating. And, and so you have to ask yourself, why is she doing this? I mean, the average person, man or woman, they have this dream of finding a mate that they can love for life and build a nice home together and have a family and you know and live happily ever after. That doesn't seem to be what motivated her at all. Uh, what was it that motivated her? Um, it, it certainly didn't seem to be finding the right husband and keeping him forever because as soon as she got one, she was looking for the next. Right, and you know, I didn't get any indication that even money was a big motive, although it seemed like when she married her, I guess the victim would be her, what, second to the last husband? Anyway, he... Well, that was her... Yeah, go ahead. Well, he he had... He was pretty well-to-do, so... Yes, he was. He was very wealthy. He owned... He owned a 160-acre dairy farm in Idaho, and he owned a ranch of thousands of acres, a cattle ranch in Oregon, plus he was a a chiropractor, he was a doctor. So he was quite wealthy. And this was back in a time when uh, minimum wage in 1946 was 40 cents an hour. 
Right, right. So, yeah, I do believe in, at that point she was definitely looking for some kind of security in her life after after blowing through all of the other marriages that she did. But the other thing that I found quite fascinating about her personality is her ability to make up stories on the, you know, like on the go um, about one husband, you know, made up stories about his evil twin who I don't think ever existed really. And how, you know, the evil twin was out to get her. And I mean, those, those kind of stories are woven throughout the book. Yes. It seems like she was very careful and did a lot of thought about how to woo the doctor, and she had several stories that were all false that she concocted in her judgment. She needed to create these stories in order to successfully woo this doctor. So um, you're right. She was very calculating. And and to me, that's that's an interesting factor in this story. When we read the newspaper today, we read about a lot of violence. And uh, But most of the violence we read about seems to be kind of sudden, it, it spur of the moment, you know, somebody's angry, somebody uh, takes action that they shouldn't take. But for Gladys, it was not sudden. She, she thought this out, she planned, prepared well in advance for her next move. Oh, she definitely did. And and again, when everything sort of unraveled for her, she she was actually married to three different men at the same time, right? Yes, she was. Yes, she was. So, so she re- she really had herself backed up against the wall, but but she continued to come up with these outlandish stories. And I guess maybe if, you know maybe they weren't so outlandish if you were there at the time and listening to her and probably the way she was able to tell these stories it probably had a sense of you know a little bit of making sense to it but you know reading it off the pages you're kind of like how why did why did these people believe her well she appears to have been a very good liar Oh, absolutely. Absolutely she was. But I'm I'm just again fascinated by the fact that she could keep all of these balls bouncing in the air at the same time and yet um you know, she wasn't all that healthy. She wasn't all that healthy of a woman and it seemed like she spent a lot of time in bed ill. Yep, yep, I think so too and and uh she had a lot of problems and and uh you know, she was a drug addict in addition to everything else. And so um, she was she was quite a piece of work, I'll tell you. Yeah, she certainly was. And what do you think about the victim in all of this, that Dr. Broadhurst, who was her, her husband who had the ranches and had the money, and um, it came to his demise through, uh, you know, her planning and plotting, his death, or actually his murder, by another man who was also her husband. Yeah, you know, I see him like a horse with blinders. He just, he almost refused to see what seemed so obvious 
to everybody else. The worse she acted, the more he proclaimed his love for her. And I don't get that. You know, I just, I find it very interesting to try and understand why he acted the way he did. Yeah, you would think he was a doctor and he was highly educated. He was quite wealthy. You would think uh, a little bit of common sense would have come with all that. But apparently, like you say, he was blinded by his love for her. And, you know, he was 11 years older than her. Uh, You would think he would have known, but maybe that's part of the problem. You know, he was getting to a time in his life where maybe he felt like, Probably he wasn't ever going to have love again, and uh, he was getting old enough that he probably wouldn't attract a woman. And then this younger woman uh, comes into his life again, because they'd known each other 20 years earlier, but she comes into his life again, and she's attractive, and she's vivacious, and uh, maybe he was kind of grasping at a straw here in his love life. I, yeah, I, that's the that's the take I got out of it as well. It's it's kind of like she she knew where to rekindle the flame. They and it was it seemed to me like it was a little bit different with with Doctor Broadhurst than it was with some of her earlier husbands. It wasn't um, she was more calculating in how to how to get this man and the reasons behind why she wanted him, um, I feel were a little bit different than, than the, her former husband's. Um, but yes. And, and he had family surrounding him at, at his home. He lived with, uh, family members who were there and who saw her personality and saw her way of thinking and yet didn't really feel it was their place to say anything. You know, that that's a good question. Why didn't other people say, Doc, you know, this, there's something really wrong here? And I think it's because he was so excited and so happy that they just didn't feel like it was appropriate for them to try and destroy his happiness. And and I, I think that must have been their motivation because I, I think they could see that Gladys was big-time trouble. Yeah, and they probably had a, a little bit of fear of what she was capable of doing. I don't think, you know, when someone is acting the way she did and, and some of the inappropriate things she did, I I think I'd kind of back away from her too. But it's, you know, I think... I, this whole story should be made into a movie because I can see the characters, I can see the parts to, that are being played with, you know, the the bumbling cowboy husband and the one with the evil twin and, and the wealthy doctor and all the ones before. It's like, this could be good. This would This would be fun to watch. <laughs> well, I kind of think so too. And I've had several other people make the same comment that, wow, this would be quite a good movie. So uh, that would be fun. Well, at least you have the basis there, for definitely have the basis for a good story that I'm sure Hollywood could um, expand on quite a bit, quite a bit. Who would you see playing the part of Gladys? (laughs) You know, uh, it'd have to be... uh, uh, 
someone who's attractive because she was a very attractive woman. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't describe her as Hollywood star beauty, but she was very attractive and she had a very warm, engaging smile. And all the photos of her, uh, she she just looks she looks like a nice person in those photos. She looks uh, like somebody you'd like to get to know. Uh, looks can be deceiving, can't they? But as far as an actress goes, um, Delilah, I I just can't imagine. I don't know how to. <laughs> To come up with a name there for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, Patrick. <laughs> when you were doing the research, you know, going through the transcripts and the newspaper articles and all that you combed through to pull the facts out, did you find out anything that was just really shocking to you that was maybe maybe included in the book or not included in the book? Uh, well. Most of the facts of the case were all new to me as I discovered them. Um, you know, the Internet is a, is a wonderful tool today, and so we learned about all of her previous husbands from the Internet, and I had some help with that. That was really great. Um, uh, and the trial transcripts were a great source of information, but also in this little town in eastern Oregon called Jordan Valley. I mean, this is a town of maybe a hundred people. I'm not sure how many people live there, but that's where the ranch was located. And the murder occurred just outside of this town. This town has a museum and, and you know, the, the lady who runs the museum, she basically, you go to the museum and you call her up and say, Hey, can I go through the museum? And she comes from her house and opens the door and lets you in. And it turned out they, they had notebooks filled with newspaper clippings from this story. That was a huge source of uh, research for me. I got tons of information from those newspaper articles that had been clipped. Because when you Google this story, you get, I got a couple newspaper articles from way back in the 1940s. But this museum was my gold mine. I can only imagine. What did were you able to speak with any local people who were familiar with her or knew her or of the case or even any family members? Well, no. Uh, of course, you know the case happened seventy three years ago, so I figured that everybody connected with the case was long and dead, uh, had died long ago. The photographer who took photos of the dead body, uh, was still alive when I was working on this. When I found out he was still alive, I was so excited. And I I drove to my hometown in Oregon to try and meet with this photographer. And when I finally got to meet with him, he had to mention he had no memory. I was, I was so heartbroken over that. And then he died not long after that. So as far as I knew, uh, nobody connected to the case was still alive. But much to my surprise, I had a newspaper article written a few weeks ago about the book in my hometown, and I was contacted by a lady who said, my mother was a witness in that trial, and she was so excited to hear about this book, and and that lady gave me her mother's contact information, and I contacted her, and she had been, she had been a witness in the trial. She was 15 years old at the time of the trial. She's 88 now, 
and uh, but she's still got a sharp mind, and we had a, a fun conversation. Oh, I bet it was. But uh, that would I think in in something like that to be able to actually talk to someone who who was there is has got to be a feather in the cap. Well, it was. Uh, I'm, I hope I'm not giving it away, but anybody can know this. Gladys was ultimately convicted uh, of murder and sent to prison, as well as her one of her the the husband who murdered the husband. Wow! <laughs> and uh, so, what happened to Gladys after that? I mean, or you know, and her her other husband. What what transpired after? they were convicted and sent to prison? Well, the the first thing is that in 1947, when this trial occurred, if you were convicted of first-degree murder, the penalty was automatically death by lethal injection. Excuse me, gas chamber. They, used, they had the gas chamber back then. Uh, but it was automatically uh, execution for first-degree murder. Unless the jury specifically requested life instead of the death penalty. And for women, they usually, in fact, I think they had never executed a woman. I think they always gave women life in prison. And so she was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And the man who actually committed the murder at her urging uh, he pled guilty to second-degree murder, and he also was sentenced to life in prison. But uh, Delilah, life doesn't mean life. <laughs> and so uh, they both were subsequently paroled and both spent quite a bit of time after their time in prison living on this good old earth. Both of them now have deceased. I wonder if they ever communicated. Do you know? Oh, I don't know. I just doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> I highly doubt that. But, you know, I have no way of knowing one way or another, but I certainly see no evidence of it. And uh, and Gladys ultimately ended up living in California for the rest of her life. Remarried. And, and the other man uh, lived back in Idaho. Well, I thought it was interesting that after she, you know, was paroled, that she did remarry, and it ended up being the longest marriage that she had, in you know, after going through eight other marriages. So, would I lost count? Would that have been eight or nine? <laughs> I lost eight. count. Okay, so her 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 last husband she she stayed married to i wonder i mean you know it makes me wonder did did things be did things happen in her time in prison that you know maybe corrected her behavior in some way probably i i think you're right uh she was a model prisoner you know because she was a mormon and been raised up in a mormon family she had been taught at an early age a lot of uh, the domestic uh, qualities of life, and so she taught the other prisoners how to knit and sew and play music, and she was an accomplished musician, a piano player, and a good singer. So uh, she she was a model prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think very likely uh, she learned to settle down and maybe get her life and life together better after serving that time in prison. Mm. Wow. It, it's, you know, I, I don't know how to think about that. Knowing, you know, knowing everything that she schemed up and did throughout her lifetime and to get out. And really a relatively short time, 10 years, wasn't it? Yeah, well, nine years and it's under 10 yeah. years, nine years and a certain number of months. Right, and, uh, right. And the community was irate when she was paroled. Uh, the community uh, felt like she was one evil woman and, and really was rooting for the death penalty. But when she was paroled in such a short time, there was pretty strong feeling in the community about how wrong that was. I can imagine, and I would imagine that Dr. Broadhurst's family weren't too happy about that either. Well, I'm sure they weren't. Hmm. I wonder, are, you know, do you know if any of them are still living or um, if um, there are family members out there that uh, have an opinion about that? There might be, and they would be distant relatives because Dr. Broadhurst never had any children, nor did Gladys. And so, uh, 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 but they probably know the story, and I imagine they would have some opinions. Hmm. Well, I got to tell you, I, I was just fascinated reading, and I, I, it was one of those books that I just went straight through. I, I didn't put it down and come back. I just went straight through because I, I just could not believe what I was reading, for one thing. And I know, you know, all of your readers out there are going to probably have the same thing just you know take a day block block a day out of your life to sit down and read uh till death do us because it's it's quite different <laughs> you're going to get you're going to get um a story about a woman that it it just seems incapable of of doing some of the things that she cooked up um what do you have going on for the future another book well I never intended to be writers. I started out telling you, and and so I I figured that uh, this would be my one and only. This book was handed to me. And it was almost forced on me. I feel like I I just was compelled to write this story. But I I always thought it would be the only book I ever write. But Delilah, it, it's such an exhilarating experience to have a book in print that I'm thinking. I wonder if I could write something else. So I'm giving some thought to it, but I don't know if I'll ever actually do it. Well, sometimes the process is more fun than actually doing it, I think. Um, Well, I would agree with you. I totally loved researching this story. Oh, I bet. I bet. And it's, you know, because of the fact that you had such a personal connection to it, I think that means a lot as well. So where where can we buy Till Death Do Us? Well, it's available on Amazon. If you Google my name, Patrick Gallagher, the book will come up. And uh, it's available both in print version and as an e-book. And they're also working on an audio book. Uh, it's not finished yet. They think it might be done about the end of the month. Oh, great. Great. I love audio books, too. That's wonderful. And I understand we can find you on Facebook at Patrick Gallagher Author. You have a page on Facebook. 
So I urge everybody, go over there and like Patrick's page and get to know him as an author and get to get your copy of Till Death Do Us. You won't be disappointed. I promise you will not be disappointed. Um, and I think you can also get it through Wild Blue Press website as well, right? Oh, that's correct, yes. Just go to Wild Blue, wildbluepress.com and the book is available from them as well. Wonderful. Listen, I I really enjoyed our conversation today, Patrick. Thank you so much for getting up earlier than I did to to come on air with me today. And I I really wish you all the success with this book. I think, um, again, it would make a great movie. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Wonderful. Well, hopefully when your next book comes out, don't forget about me. Come back and, and we'll do this again, okay? <laughs> Very well. I, I, I hope that day happens, but I certainly will. Good deal. So everybody go to wildbluepress.com or Amazon and get your copy today of Patrick Gallagher. And as you go out into the world, if, you're, if your area has, has been lucky enough to start opening up again during this pandemic, just remember, there's there's a lot of strange things happening in the world out there. However, if we all be kind to each other, it'll all be better. So be kind. 